You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art, translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Benno. The next two sections I'm going to read together, they're two essays. Uh, This is the first essay, Count Leo Tolstoy, What is Art? from 1898. Count Leo Tolstoy has published an article entitled What is Art? Since becoming a preacher of morality... The Russian novelist has destroyed the sympathies of a large contingent of his former admirers. The content of his moral preaching in no way rises to the heights of his artistic works. The content of his moral preaching is a morality of feeling, based on universal human love and compassion and directed toward the conquest of egotism. The best way to describe it is as watered-down Christianity. Tolstoy also answers the question, what is art, on the basis of this moral teaching. First of all, he points out that the creation of a work of art requires an incredible amount of effort. He takes an opera rehearsal he once witnessed as his point of departure. He describes how much time and effort such a rehearsal requires and how indifferently the director deals with the personnel in his charge. Then he asks what the result of all this effort and work is. Quote, for whom does all this happen? Whom can it please? Even if now and then some pleasant themes can be heard in this opera, it would be easier just to sing them without all these stupid costumes, acts, recitatives, and swaying arms. But a ballet in which half-naked women make sensuously provocative movements and wreathe themselves in garlands is nothing other than a morally degrading idea such that one cannot even grasp for whom it is meant. An educated person has had enough of such stuff, and an ordinary worker simply does not understand it. It can only please those, and I doubt even this, who are not yet sated by so-called societal pleasures, but have adapted to societal requirements and want to demonstrate their education like young lackeys. And this quite ugly stupidity is not rehearsed with goodwill, not simply cheerful, but with wicked barbarity. Quote. Because art exacts such sacrifices, one has to ask, what is the purpose of art? How does art contribute to the entire cultural development of humanity? To answer this question, Tolstoy surveys the German, French, and English aestheticians who have published their views about the task of art. His conclusion about these aestheticians is unfavorable. He determines that there is no agreement about the concept of art. He says, quote, Even apart from the inexact definition of art, which does not even cover the concept of art, whose nature can be found now in usefulness, now in purpose, now in symmetry, now in order, now in proportion, now in sleekness, now in harmony of the parts, now in unity, now in variety, now in the various combinations of these principles, even apart from these insufficient attempts at objective definitions, all aesthetic determinations can be traced back to two fundamental views of beauty. 
The first is that beauty exists for its own sake, as an appearance of the utterly perfect, of the idea, of the spirit, of the will from God. And the second is that beauty provides us with an enjoyment that does not seek its own personal gain. Close quote. Tolstoy finds both points of view imperfect. The reason for this imperfection is based on a primitive view of human culture. At a primitive stage of perception, people also see the purpose of eating to be the enjoyment that food offers them. A higher level of insight would allow them to recognize that nutrition and thus the fostering of life is the purpose of eating, and that enjoyment is merely a subsidiary byproduct. Similarly, the human being who believes that the purpose of art consists of the enjoyment of beauty also stands on a lower level. Quote, to come to a precise definition of art, one must, above all, stop seeing it as a means for enjoyment. Instead, one ought to see art as one of the conditions of human life. Starting from this point of view, we must admit that art is one of the means of communication among people. Close quote. Tolstoy does not allow art to be valid for its own sake. People should understand, love, and support one another. For him, that is the purpose of all culture. Art should be merely the means for realizing this higher purpose. Through words, human beings share their thoughts and experiences. Through language, each individual lives in and with the entirety of humanity. Whatever cannot be brought about by words alone, toward this goal of coexistence, should be achieved by art. It should transmit the perceptions of feelings from one human being to the other, just as words do with experiences and thoughts. Quote, when the human being becomes aware through ear or eye of another's expression of feelings, then art achieves its goal. Close quote. I believe that Tolstoy failed to see the origin of art. The artist is not concerned with the message. If I see something manifest in nature or in human life, then a primal urge compels me to reproduce this manifestation as a picture in spirit and my imagination urges me to transform and shape this picture according to my own tendencies. To shape this picture I use the means afforded by my capacities. If the means are colors, then I paint, and if they are ideas, then I write poems. I do not do this so as to communicate, but because I have the need to make a picture of the world according to my imagination. I am not satisfied with the form that nature and human life present to me, when I consider them merely as a passive observer. I want to create pictures that I myself invent, or that if I absorb them from outside, I replicate in my own way. Human beings do not want to be mere observers or onlookers of world events. They want to contribute something out of themselves to whatever approaches them from without. That is why they become artists. How the created work then works on is an after-effect. Tolstoy may be right about how art affects culture, but the justification for art as such must, independent of its effect, be sought in an inherent need of human nature. And that is the end of the short essay, Count Leo Tolstoy, What is Art? And I'm going to continue with the next essay, again from 1898, titled On Truth and the Illusion of Truth in Works of Art. Goethe has an interesting essay on this theme, which appears in the form of a dialogue. 
In it, he deals exhaustively with the question, what sort of truth should be asked for in a work of art? What is said there counterbalances recent works written on this topic. Since at present there is as much lively interest as there is confusion regarding this question, it may be relevant to point out the main thoughts of Goethe's dialogue. It takes its departure from the presentation of the, quote, play within the play, close quote. Quote, In a German theater, an oval amphitheater-like building had been set up. Many spectators had been painted into its balcony boxes, as if they were participating in what was happening below them. Some real spectators in the orchestra and in the boxes were unhappy about this and were offended that something so untrue and unlikely was being set before them. This provided an opportunity for a conversation that is here recorded. Close quote. The conversation takes place between an artist's agent, who believes that he has solved his problem with a painted audience, and a member of the audience for whom such painted spectators do not suffice, because he demands naturalistic accuracy. This audience member wants everything, quote, at least to seem to be true and real, close quote. He continues, quote, Why else would the set designer go to the trouble of adhering so precisely to all the laws of perspective, with his lines, and to paint all objects according to the most complete representation? Why should the costumes require so much study? Why put such a value on the authenticity that transports me back into those times? Why laud most the actor who expresses feelings most truly in speech, posture, and gesture, which deceives me into believing that I am not seeing an impersonation, but the thing itself? Close quote. The artist's agent now points out to the spectator how all of this does not justify his claim that he must have people and events in the theater that seem to be true. On the contrary, he must instead assert that he never has the impression of seeing the truth, but rather an illusion, although admittedly an illusion of truth. At first the spectator believes that the agent is dabbling in semantics. Thereupon, Goethe allows the agent to answer subtly, quote, And I maintain that when we speak of the effects of our spirit, no words are subtle and delicate enough, and that this sort of play on words indicates a need of the spirit, which, not being able to express adequately what goes on inside us, tries to work through the antitheses, to answer each side of the question, and thus, as it were, to find the middle between them, Quote. People who are accustomed to living only in the crass and clunky ideas derived from everyday life often see unnecessary quibbling in the delicate conceptual distinctions that have to be made by anyone who wants to grasp the delicate, unendingly complicated relationships within reality. Indeed, it is true that one can argue brilliantly with words, can use words to formulate a system, but it is not always the fault of the one formulating the system that no concepts connect with the words. Often the one hearing the words simply cannot connect the concepts to the words that have been heard. It is often comical when people complain that the words of this or that philosopher make no sense. They always believe it is the philosopher's fault. Yet often the fault lies with the readers, who cannot think whereas the philosopher has thought a great deal. <laughs>
there is a big difference between, quote, seeming to be true, close quote, and, quote, the illusion of truth, close quote. Of course, theatrical presentation is illusion. One can be of the opinion that the illusion ought to have a form in which it pretends to be reality. Or one can be convinced that the illusion ought to honestly show, I am not reality, I am illusion. If the illusion has this honesty, then it cannot take its laws from reality. It must have laws of its own that are not the same as those of reality. Whoever wants an artistic illusion that imitates reality will say, in a theatrical production, everything must proceed as it would proceed in reality if the same event occurred. On the other hand, whoever wants an artistic illusion that honestly presents itself as illusion will say, the laws through which the dramatic events are linked together are different from those through which real events are linked together. Whoever is convinced of this must also admit that in art there are laws for the linking together of facts for which there is no corresponding model in nature. These laws are imparted by imagination. Imagination does not create according to nature, rather parallel to nature. It creates a higher artistic truth. This is the conviction that Goethe lets the, in quotes, artist's agent utter. He maintains that, quote, artistic truth and natural truth are entirely different, and that the artist should neither strive for nor even be allowed to let his work appear as a work of nature. Close quote. Only artists who lack imagination will want to deliver natural truth in their work, and are therefore unable to create anything artistically true, needing instead to borrow from nature if they want to achieve anything at all. And only those spectators will demand natural truth who do not have sufficient aesthetic culture to raise themselves to the demands of a particular artistic truth besides the natural truth. They know only the truth they experience on a daily basis. And when confronted with art, they ask, does this artistic work agree with what we know about reality? The aesthetically cultured person recognizes a truth other than that of common reality. He seeks this other truth in art. In a very crude but fitting example, Goethe has his artist's agent clarify this difference between a person with aesthetic culture and one without. Quote, a renowned naturalist possessed, among other domesticated animals, a monkey, which he lost one day, and after a long search found again in the library. There sat the beast on the ground with the plates of an unbound work of natural history scattered about him. Astonished by this fervent research on the part of his familiar, the gentleman approached and discovered to his wonder and vexation that the sweet-toothed monkey had been devouring the beetles that were pictured on the plates. The monkey knows only natural beetles, and the way he relates to such natural beetles in ordinary life is that he devours them. In the reproductions, it was not reality he encountered, but illusion. He does not take the illusion for illusion. For he could not establish a relationship to an illusion. He takes the illusion for reality and relates to it as if it were real. 
People who take an artistic illusion for reality are like this monkey. If they see a depiction of a robbery or a love scene on stage, they want to experience it just as they would the corresponding scene in reality. The, in quotes, spectator, in Goethe's dialogue, is brought to a purer view of artistic appreciation through the example of the monkey and says, quote, does not the uncultivated amateur, for this very reason, want a work to be natural so that he may be able to enjoy it in a natural way, which is often vulgar and common, close quote. The work of art desires to be appreciated in a higher way than does the natural work. And whoever has not implanted this higher means of appreciation in himself through aesthetic culture is like the monkey who devours the painted beetles instead of observing them in order to gain natural scientific knowledge. The agent describes it like this, quote, A perfect work of art is a work of the human spirit and in this sense also a work of nature. But because it unites scattered objects, which it includes even in their most common meaning and value, it is above nature. It is comprehensible only by a mind that is harmoniously formed and developed, and such a mind discovers that the perfect, the complete, is also in harmony with its own nature. The common spectator, on the contrary, has no idea of this. He treats a work of art as he would any object he encounters in the marketplace. But the true connoisseur sees not only the truth of the imitation, but also the excellence of the selection, the refinement of the composition, the superiority of the little world of art. He feels that he must rise to the level of the artist in order to enjoy the work. He feels that he must collect himself out of his scattered life, must live with the work of art, see it again and again, thereby receive a higher existence. Art that seeks mere natural accuracy, aping common daily reality, is refuted the moment one feels the possibility of achieving the higher existence alluded to above. This possibility can actually only be felt by each person individually. That is why there can be no universally convincing refutation of naturalism. Whoever knows only common daily reality will always remain stuck in naturalism. Whoever discovers in himself the capacity to see beyond the natural to a special essence of art will perceive naturalism as the aesthetic worldview of narrow-minded people. Once this becomes apparent, one will not fight naturalism with logic or other weapons. For such a battle would be like wanting to convince the monkey that painted beetles are not for devouring, but for observing. And even if it were possible to make it clear to the monkey that painted beetles are not edible, there would be one thing he would not understand, namely, why there should be painted beetles that cannot be devoured. That is also how it goes with the aesthetically undeveloped person. He might be brought to the point of view that a work of art should not be dealt with like an object you can find in the marketplace. But he will not see why a work of art should exist at all. This is more or less the content of the aforementioned dialogue by Goethe. One sees how it deals in a refined manner 
with questions that are being scrutinized again today. Such scrutiny, as with many other things, would not be necessary if one were to take the trouble to immerse oneself in the thoughts of those who approached these matters in the context of a singularly developed culture. That's the end of uh, part four, which consists of two small essays. It is also the end of, actually, uh, in the larger sense, part one of the book, and the second part is uh, composed of lectures.